Thanks for joining us. We're in a little series at the moment um, called We Are Church, and we've been looking at three aspects of church, the essence, the function, and the form. Last week, we were, were looking at how the form of church uh, has to give expression to the essence of church, that we are one in Jesus Christ. We're many branches, but we are one vine. And, and that, due to the wonderful grace of God through Jesus Christ that is ours. Uh, this week, I want to look at how the form of the church should always serve the function. Um, by function, we, we're referring to those two aspects of church life in which we are constantly looking to build one another up and we are constantly looking to light up the world, to build up and to light up. And form is the servant of function. I... Uh, like many people, I guess my age, I've driven many different types of cars over the years. Um, the fastest car I've ever driven, without a doubt, was a Commodore uh, VL, turbocharged. It was a police car. That's why it was the fastest. Um, the most prestigious car I think I've ever driven was a Porsche. A doctor, a friend of mine in Adelaide gave me a drive of his Porsche on one occasion. I must confess, it was very much like a go-kart um, and, uh, and probably the most fun, most challenging car I've ever driven was, a, was an old beat-up Renault. Um, it, it only had uh, two of the four gears working, second and fourth. And so, so when you took off, um, it was a challenge because it was a manual to not stall but to, to slowly build up your speed and to get, get into the traffic. And, um, and then you had to build up so much speed in, in second gear that you could transfer immediately to fourth. And so... Uh, naturally, um, that car didn't last very long, but it was challenging and it was a lot of, was a lot of fun to, to drive. At the end of the day, though, all of the cars, they were just vehicles. They got you from A to B. They, they served a particular function. And when we talk about the form of church, we're talking about exactly the same thing. The form simply serves a particular function. Um, form, like vehicles, all have a particular purpose and right or wrong can sometimes simply be a question of timing. So is a discussion about the form of church important? Well, yes, it is, um, very much so. Uh, my, my major many years ago was in missiology and, and so we would look at um, issues of contextualisation um, being being relevant to a particular context. But the question of relevance had more to do with function than it did the actual context it, itself. It's important to have these discussions. And right up front, we need to firstly confess that there are certain forms of church that are very familiar to us and precious to us because they evoke warm memories. Sometimes that's a the style of songs that we sing. We, we remember back to when that song first touched our heart. And, and so, so the form, because it triggers a memory, can become very, very precious to us. We need to admit that certain forms uh, can actually sometimes inhibit our functionality. Uh, sometimes we can grow so fast or so large that we're not very good at the caring function, that part where we build one another up. Or perhaps sometimes we become so busy with programs that we're not very good at the evangelism function, lighting up the world and being present with our neighbours and, and others who need to hear the gospel. 
we need to also concede that certain forms might not fully express the essence of church, that we are one in Christ. We might do a, a great Christmas or Easter presentation, but if we don't demonstrate the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, then we've lost the essence. And so a discussion around forms are very, very important. Lastly, perhaps, I, I suspect that much of the disappointment of various saints within the church and with the church has to do with this whole area of form. And so it is worthy of, of our attention. Last week, we were looking at a great little passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It's a, it's a wonderful passage. Um, but it sits within an overall context that is unfolding within Acts. And, and so right now, we're actually going to break and we're going to have a look at the whole of Acts, Acts in three minutes. I hope you enjoy it. In my former video, Theophilus, I explained the life of Christ in three minutes. Now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. After being crucified, Jesus comes back to life and hangs out with the apostles. He tells them that they will receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses. Jesus takes off. The disciples are gathered together on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives. Tongues of fire hover over them, hence the logo. The disciples speak in tongues. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. God, one, Satan, zero. The end of Acts chapter 2 is written, providing mission statements for churches in the 21st century. Peter heals a lame man and preaches another sermon. Another 2,000 people get saved. Peter and John are thrown in jail. They're released. Peter and John celebrate with the other believers and pray for continued boldness. God rocks the house, literally. Ananias and Sapphira lie about their offering to the church and are struck dead. Contributions skyrocket. The apostles preach again. They are thrown in jail again. An angel releases them. They preach some more. The apostles nominate seven deacons to look after widows and orphans, including Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is stoned. Present at the stoning is a young man named Saul. We'll come back to that later. Persecution breaks out, believers scatter, things look bad for the church. Or do they? Wherever the believers go, they preach the word, thus fulfilling the Great Commission. God to Satan still zero. Philip meets a eunuch, the eunuch is baptized. Meanwhile, Saul is on his way to persecute believers in Damascus when Jesus appears. Saul is blinded, Saul is healed. Saul repents and begins preaching to the same people he intended to persecute. God three, Satan, well, you get the idea. Peter has a vision of unclean animals. Peter has an encounter with unclean Gentiles. He gets it. God has extended salvation to the Gentiles. Major game changer. Herod is eaten by worms. Barnabas and Paul start working together, traveling and preaching the word. By the way, I'm going to call Saul Paul now. I don't have time to explain why. Still with me? In Lystra, crowds attempt to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. They refuse to be worshipped and are stoned. The Lystrians are a tough crowd. Paul and Barnabas survive. Paul and Barnabas part ways. Paul and Silas team up. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Paul circumcises Timothy. Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. The party leaves for Macedonia. Spoiler alert, they are thrown in prison yet again. They sing. An earthquake loosens their shackles, but they stick around to lead the jailer to Christ. Yada, 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 more preaching. In Troas, Paul preaches for so long that a man falls asleep and plummets out a window to his death. The man is resurrected. Paul preaches some more. The man wishes he was dead. Paul returns to Jerusalem, where he is promptly arrested again. He is visited by the Lord, who assures him that Paul will testify about him in Rome. Paul feels better. Paul is transferred to Caesarea, where his case is caught up in red tape for two years. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar and is put on a fast ship to Rome. The shipwrecks. Paul is bitten by a snake. At last, Paul makes it to Rome. He is placed under house arrest and continues to preach the gospel while awaiting trial. And that is all we know of Paul's story. Somewhere in there, he finds the time to write a few letters. Today, they comprise much of the New Testament. The New Testament is also where you'll find the book of Acts. The End.
Well, there you have it. Acts in three minutes. There you go. How, how did it take us two years just to get to chapter 17? I don't know. But I wanted, wanted you to note something in chapters one to nine about the various forms, the many forms of, of church. In chapter one, we see that, that the, the 11 disciples now are commissioned on the Mount of Olives. They go back to Jerusalem and they're in an upper room where um, in, in a few days' time they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they start to speak many languages. Well, then they go outside of the house, they step outside, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are added to their number that day. That's pretty remarkable. They would gather daily. Now, obviously not in just that house, but in the temple courts, but also in one another's homes. On one such occasion, um, up at a gate called Beautiful, a beggar is healed. Peter preaches again. Peter and John are arrested. But another 2,000 people are added to their number. So now there is 5,000 men, just, just men. There's now 5,000 who are, who are believers. In chapter 3, we, we read that they would meet daily in Solomon, Solomon's colonnade. And then in chapter 5, there are more miracles that are performed and even more people are added to their number. Day after day, they would meet both in the temple courts and they would go from house to house proclaiming the gospel. Um, there were more problems coming from outside the church. There were growing pains within the church uh, amongst the Hellenistic widows. Um, and then there was all that persecution so that in chapter 6 we see that the whole church, all of the believers, were scattered. Now, this is a hinge point in the book of Acts. Something, something amazing is happening here. We know, do you remember way back in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, now here in chapter 8, we see that the apostles are remaining in Jerusalem. The believers spread to Judea. Philip goes down to Samaria. And now we're introduced to this character called Paul in chapter 9, who begins his preaching ministry to the Gentiles. Paul has been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. You see, Acts 1.8 is finding its fulfillment. And so at different points in these first uh, nine chapters, we see two things happening. Many varied forms, small and large gatherings, and then a scattering near to their respective homes, but then far, even down to Samaria and, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. We see all of these different forms, but they are all fulfilling these two functions to build one another up and to light up the world. In chapters 2 and 4, we've got these great little summaries of this rich fellowship um, and, and communal, uh, communal life together in, in God's spirit um, where people just shared what they have and there are, there are miracles done and there is a, a submission to the word of God and the spirit of God is alive and active in their midst. These beautiful little pictures where the body is being built up. They are building one another up. We see that again in chapter 6 for the provision for the Hellenistic widows. And then in chapter 8 and following, we're seeing how many are being one to the Lord. They're being added to their number. But, but at the same time, they are lighting up the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now even the ends of the earth. And so these two functions, building one another up and then lighting up the world, are being fulfilled through these, these different forms. So amidst persecution and peace, um, famine and plenty, disdain and, and favour, there seems to be 
four normative expressions of the church, four normative forms in which the church is expressed. The first one is smaller gatherings. We see that as they meet in one another's homes. They are often in an upper room praying and God speaks to them. Sometimes the whole house is shaken because of the presence of God. They go from house to house. They're breaking bread in one another's homes and so forth. Definitely small gatherings. But then there are larger gatherings as well. They're meeting up in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade. And even when they're, when they're spread, as Acts, Acts develops, we will see later on in Philippi um, that they would, they would sometimes meet outside of the town, down by the river. And that's where, that's where Lydia gets baptised. So, so the church would meet in smaller gatherings, but it would also meet in larger gatherings as well. Both of these expressions seem to be normative. So often we have discussions around an either-or, but I'm convinced that it is a both-end discussion. Many years ago, I was in Vietnam and I was visiting with a pastor. Now, my advisor had told me, Stuart, um, the pastor would love to meet with you afterwards, but the meeting has to be just for 10 minutes. The church will, will have a number of undercover police there and, and they will be timing the meeting. And if you go over 10 minutes afterwards, that will make trouble for the pastor. Most likely, he'll be arrested, he'll be taken, taken downtown and he'll be interrogated and, and frequently uh, they will just be um, incarcerated for days and sometimes even beaten. So try to keep your meeting to 10 minutes. So I had this in the back of my mind. I attended the service. It was a beautiful service um, with these undercover police sort of, you know, in attendance there, sort of infiltrating the body of believers. I, I wondered what it was going to look like well, they just went all out, the believers there in this church. It was beautiful. Um, there was a baptism. Can you imagine that? Here in this communist country, um, somebody was being baptised and openly professing their faith. The worship was rich and loud, like we are gonna, we're not going to let anything shut down our hearts expressing their love for God. It was really, really beautiful. And then when the pastor preached, it was a solid sermon. I tell you, he didn't miss a beat. The gospel was proclaimed faithfully and it, it was a fantastic service. Well, afterwards I met with him as planned in his office and, and we just hit it off. We were talking and, and very, very quickly we lost track of time. But I noticed that he changed posture at one point, became a little bit less comfortable and sweat was breaking out on his forehead. And I realised, oh, we're over 10 minutes. We had to... We had to break up our time. We longed to, to linger there and to pray together. I, I said a quick prayer and, and then we had, to, we had to go our separate ways. And as I left, I was thinking about the pressure that he was under. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be easier for you to just go underground, to meet in different homes and so forth? But then I realised if you did that, you, you wouldn't have that wonderful service, that gathering together, which was so rich and beautiful. You see, it's not an either or. I'm convinced it's, it's a both end. So there are small gatherings and there are large gatherings. And then there is a near scattering and a far scattering. The near scattering is more inferred. That is to say, everybody still went to their respective homes. They would, they would meet in the marketplace. They, they had jobs and livelihoods and so forth. And so they lived in the city. And, and we, we see in many of the various epistles, uh, Paul and other writers encouraging the believers to, to live quiet lives that are an example to, to others. 
So there is a near scattering as they depart and, 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 and go and do life within their society and context. And then there is a far scattering, which on this occasion came quite unexpectedly through the persecution. The disciples were spread far afield, but it was all to accomplish God's purposes. I used to use an illustration sometimes, particularly with kids, around a popcorn machine. And this popcorn machine, um, which was, was powered by electricity, became hot and, and, and popped the corn, was symbolic of the church, which when plugged into the power of God's, God's Holy Spirit would experience a, a, a warmth of fellowship and the transformation of lives. People turned inside out. And, and then if you take the lid off it, they would go out and, and, and spread the love of God to, to the surrounds. Now, Literally, with the popcorn machine, when I take the lid off, most of it would just sort of pour forth around the machine. But every now and again, um, inexplicably, a, a particular little corn would pop and just shoot, you know, metres away from the machine and, and go further afield. Well, it's a both end. The church is very much like that popcorn machine. It's not an either or. It's a both end. We're to go near and we're to, to scatter far as, as well, taking the gospel with us wherever we go. So, so here's a few things we wanted to note from these, these chapters. Form always serves function. It's the servant of function. Secondly, it has four normative expressions. Sometimes it's impossible to, to find all of those expressions, but, but eventually, as the church regathers itself, it will usually um, give expression to all of, all of those four forms small gatherings, large gatherings, near scattering, fast gathering. And the third thing to know is that, that God uses form, but he's not beholden to it. He uses the different forms of church, but he's not beholden to it. I think that's beautifully illustrated by Philip. He's prompted by the Spirit of God to, to head south. He meets an Ethiopian official. He baptises him and then he disappears and he appears somewhere else. God can use form, but he is not beholden to it. Well, what's the application for us, particularly at this, at this particular strange season of the church? What do, we, what do we take away from all of this? The, the church in Jerusalem um, was in enjoying favour with God and, and with all of the people. They didn't necessarily want to scatter, leave their homes and their livelihoods and be, and be pushed out to Samaria and, and beyond. Yet it, yet it happened. It did happen. Um, most of us as, as Christians, in our lifetime, we will experience a, a change of form. And that can be hard. It really can. We're experiencing it now, aren't we? It's hard. But we need to remember that form is the servant of function. And the purposes of the, of the kingdom should always come before our comfort. Perhaps we need to admit at a time like this, we became comfortable and overly familiar with certain forms. This is an opportunity that, that, that God does not want to waste. He has not caused this current season, but he does want to use it. And I believe he wants to use it to, to help us to rethink the forms in, in which we give expression to what it means to be, to be church. There are things likely that I and 
and all of us um, probably need to surrender, to lay down, so that we can actually receive the new things that, that God wants to give to us. Even um, when we're scattered, we need to remember the people of God are never in retreat. We are always deployed. Right now, we're bound to our homes and in a very small context, aren't we? But even there, we're being deployed strategically by God to accomplish his purposes, to fulfill the function of the church. Remember that. Where you are right now is no accident. Don't fall into the trap of, of going into retreat mode. You have been very carefully and strategically deployed by God to bear much fruit. And you remember a few weeks ago we taught specifically about that. You have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. Remember that. This is God's deployment for you. Find him in this. Find out what his purposes are for you. Ask him. Join him. Hand in hand with God, Father, join him and, and, and ask him, Spirit of God, lead me, guide me, empower me, show me what your purposes are for this particular time. So God uses form. He's not bound by it. He has deployed you at such a time as this to, to fulfil particular functions. Our, our functions remain the same, to build one another up and to light up the world around us. We're still on mission with him. That is still his purpose for us. And as we go forward, we can trust him to help us find the new forms which are going to continue to best fulfil the functions that he has for us. God will do this, I promise. Well, that's, that's it for our little mini-series on We Are Church. However, in the next few weeks, we're, we're going to start a new book, and I hope you're excited about this. Um, it's First Thessalonians. Interestingly, the women's Bible study is studying this on Sunday night. Now, I didn't know that. Probably should have known it. <laughs> My wife is one of the leaders. <laughs> but anyway, somehow I'd missed that small detail. And after praying and thinking about where next, God, what, what is it that you would like us to, to look at? Um, I, I was led to First Thessalonians. And uh, I was chatting with Bron on one particular occasion and and she, she said, um, yeah, we're studying Thessalonians. I said, really? And she said, yeah, 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 children of the day. It's a Beth Moore Bible study. And I said, that's interesting because that's exactly what I think God is putting on our heart or on my heart for the church at this time. The reason I think First Thessalonians is particularly relevant to us is here is a church that, that is putting into practice the the two primary functions of church, to build one another up and to light up the world around them. Um, Paul, in his letter to them, talks about the fact that the gospel came to them not just with words but with power, um, that they, they welcomed the message of God in the midst of great suffering, that they, they turned to God from idols. Paul even mentions in chapter 2, verse 5, that he didn't wear a mask amongst them, as in there were no facades. Um, he talks about their longing to see them because they had been separated and that, that he believed that it was Satan that was trying to divide and conquer them um, and, and had kept Paul from being able to visit. So he sends Timothy to them and he reassures them of his, his prayers for them um, and, and so on and so forth. I, I think you're going to love First Thessalonians and I look forward to, um, I look forward to Ollie um, opening up for us 
both the introduction and chapter one for us in the coming weeks. So have a read of 1 Thessalonians. Do get excited about it. I think there's much for us to learn as a, as a church. And I hope you've enjoyed this little mini-series. We are church.